Book Three, Chapter Eleven of Clara Vaughan, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Clara Vaughan, Volume Two, by R. D. Blackmore. Book Three, Chapter Eleven. Beloved Giudice remained many days under my care, until he became convinced that he was my dog absolutely, and had no claim on any other human being. He more than paid for his board and medical attendance by sitting repeatedly for his portrait, in which at last I succeeded to his and my own satisfaction. Though by no means a conceited dog, there was nothing he loved better than having his likeness taken and directly after breakfast he always assumed the most becoming attitude, and watched intently for the appearance of the pencil, with his massive head a little on one side, and his dark brown eyes full of dignified interest, and his great ears curving down through russet tufts, like tawny cascades in autumn, he seemed fit study for a real artist, who should quicken as well as copy him. However, he was too much of a gentleman to sneer at my weak efforts, for he saw that I did my best. Oftentimes he would gaze steadfastly at the portrait and then at me, and hobble up and nudge me and whine a little, and then sigh in self-abasement at his want of speech. Whenever he did this I knew that he wished to have something altered, but it was long before I could discover what that something was. I tried every change of line or colour that I could think of, all to no purpose. At length it struck me that as he criticised more with his nose than eyes, the defect must be in the smell. Happy idea! I satisfied my Giudice at last, and did it thus. After shading round the nose and mouth, before laying on the colour, I took a clean dry brush, and passed it lightly around the hollows of his own sweet saltish nostrils, carefully avoiding the cut, and then one turn of the brush, not on the palette, but on a dry square of colour, and with that I expressed the dear dog's nose so well that he would have spoiled it in a sniffing ecstasy if I had not pulled it away. His portrait now possessed the life which he required. Meanwhile I received almost daily visits from Isola and her brother. The latter was, of course, very anxious about his poor dog, and could only relieve that anxiety by long interviews with him. It happened strangely enough, yet more and more often as time went on, that Isola, during these interviews, felt an especial desire for Mrs. Shelfer's society, which she could only enjoy by betaking herself to the kitchen. There, with all the pets except old Tom, who was constancy itself, and the lame blackbird, who was all gratitude, her influence began to supersede mine, and even Mrs. Shelfer's. For this I cared but little, so long as Giudice kept to me. Over that great dog, as he turned upon his side and lifted one hind leg, the canine mode of showing submission to the will of God, over him we bent, Conrad and I, in most interesting diagnosis, until it seemed the proper thing that our hair should flow together, and our breath make one soft breeze. From this position we would rise with a conscious colour in our cheeks, and a flutter at the heart, and a certain awe of one another. Then it would be ever so long before either of us dared to seek the other's eyes, Haply when those eyes were met, unwitting yet inevitably, they would drop, or turn away, or 
find some new attraction in the dog or clouds. Then some weak remark would follow, for which the hearer cared no whit, yet feigned deep interest therein. Why labour thus to cheat ourselves? Each other we cannot cheat. Why feel we so confused and guilty? Why long so heartily to be a hundred leagues away, yet knowing thoroughly that if it were so, all the space between were void and heartache? The reason neither we nor other mortal knows. The cause is this, that we love one another. I have felt that it must be so, at least on my part, ever since the day he came with Isola, and knew me not, though I knew him so well. Does he know me now, as the Clara Vaughan whom he once avoided? These eyelashes are as long and dark as ever, the large eyes shaded by them are as deep a grey as twilight in a grove of willows. My cheeks have regained their curve, my hair was never injured. Let me hide to the glass now he is gone, and see if I be like myself, and whether I have face and form likely to win Conrad's love. No, I am not like myself. No wonder he does not know me. The gloom, habitual to my face, is gone. It is the difference betwixt a cavern well and a sunny fountain. I see a laughing, graceful girl, with high birth marked in every vein, and self-respect in every motion. Her clear cheeks glowing with soft wonder, her red lips parted with delight, her arching neck and shoulder curve gleaming through a night of tresses, her forehead calm and thoughtful still, half belying the bright eyes where love and pleasure sparkle. For a moment self-approval heightens the expression. At my silly self, my foolish self is smiling, but the smile has warmer source than maiden's light conceit. I smile because I see that, as regards exterior, he who slights me must be hard to please, and someone whom I think of is not hard to please. Straight upon the thought of him. Ah, well. My father used to quote from the hero and Leander, a beautiful verse, which neither he nor any other could in English render duly. Showering from her cheek the flowing carmine of her shame. End of Book Three, Chapter Eleven.